Hey folks, Lisa here. I hope you're staying safe on what's now been a week since Mecklenburg County's stay-at-home order took effect to slow the spread of COVID-19. WFAE is committed to keeping you informed each step of the way. For the latest on the coronavirus and answers to listener questions, like what counts as essential work or travel during a stay-at-home order, make sure to go to WFAE.org. With that said, let's start the episode. It's Thursday, April 2nd, and 144 days separate us from the scheduled start of the Republican National Convention in Charlotte. Somebody was asking today, will you cancel the convention? I said, no way I'm going to cancel the convention. We're not going to cancel. It's going to be incredible. From WFAE, Charlotte's NPR News Source, I'm Lisa Worf. And I'm Steve Harrison. And this is Inside Politics, the RNC in Charlotte. Like many states, North Carolina is now under a stay-at-home order, and the state is now seeing its first deaths from COVID-19. But as the president said in that interview with Sean Hannity of Fox News last week, the convention is four months away, and it's definitely still on, though he doesn't have the final decision on that. NBC's Brian Williams put this question to likely Democratic nominee Joe Biden this week. Can you really envision... Every prominent Democrat in this country from all 50 states inside a hot arena 104 days from now? It's hard to envision that. Again, we should listen to the scientists. And, you know, one of the reasons why the Democratic convention was going to be held early was the Olympics were coming after the Republican convention. There is more time now. I think we're going to again... We have, we ought to be in this episode, we're going to look at how the pandemic has upended the presidential campaign, wiping out for now any traditional campaign events by Biden and MAGA rallies, too. We'll also look at how this crisis has affected the president's approval ratings and those of past presidents and other crises and the State Board of Elections recommendations to make it easier for people to vote by mail. OK, So MAGA rallies are off the table, but President Trump has found a different forum, the near-daily press briefings. Thank you very much, everyone. Our country is in the midst of a great national trial, unlike any we have ever faced before. You all see it. You see it probably better than most. We're at war with a deadly virus. Those briefings are the subject of a Politico story. Trump turns a crisis into his new nightly TV show. It's written by Michael Cruz. He covers what he calls Trumpology. We've kind of gotten used to the drama of one of President Trump's political rallies. We've got the drama of the press conference now. So how do you see those dynamics different? There is an element of suspense in them in that we sort of wonder what he's going to say, what kinds of tiffs he's going to get into with various reporters, who is going to be there of the members of what we've come to see as kind of the supporting cast, the public health professionals, the doctors, the admirals, the cabinet members. The briefings have drawn a lot of viewers and listeners, and in a tweet on Sunday, President Trump quoted a New York Times article about them. He tweeted, President is a ratings hit. His coronavirus updates have attracted an average audience of 8.5 million, roughly the viewership of the season finale of The Bachelor. Cruz says the president has managed to make the daily briefings into a soap opera, 
with the public wondering who will get the credit and blame. And questions like, will Dr. Anthony Fauci be on the show or will he be written out of the script? What about Dr. Deborah Burks, the coronavirus response coordinator? What will Dr. Burks say? How will she navigate the odd dynamics of trying to push back at something President Trump might say without totally pushing back against what President Trump has just said? That's a pretty typical dynamic between Trump and the supporting cast. There have been moments of disagreement on stage, though. Remember a couple weeks ago when Trump called the anti-malarial drug chloroquine a game changer in regard to treating COVID-19 and said the FDA had already approved its use? Fauci was asked about that the next day. But the information that you're referring to specifically is anecdotal. It was not done in a controlled clinical trial, so you really can't make any definitive statement about it. I think uh, I'm, without uh, seeing too much, I'm probably more of a fan of that than uh, maybe than anybody. But I'm a big fan. We'll see what happens. And uh, we all understand what the doctor These are kind of the latest installment in the ongoing Trump show that has been his presidency and to some extent his existence overall well before he got into politics as well. And one of the pivotal plot points came later on in that press conference when NBC News reporter Peter Alexander asked Trump a series of questions. What do you say the Americans were scared, though? I guess nearly 200 dead, 14,000 who are sick, millions, as you witnessed, who are scared right now. What do you say to Americans who are watching you right now who are scared? Uh, I say that you're a terrible reporter. That's what I say. I think it's a very nasty question, and I think it's a very bad signal that you're putting out to the American people. The American people are looking for answers, and they're looking for hope. And you're doing sensationalism. Cruz saw that moment as enlightening. Fairly early in the response to the worsening pandemic, there was still sort of the question for the American public whether or not we would see a slightly different Donald Trump, given the gravity of the situation. And in that moment, it's fair to say we all understood, perhaps we shouldn't have thought this in the first place, but we all understood that Donald Trump still was Donald Trump. Cruz said the president has struggled with an enemy he can't bully on Twitter. The coronavirus is a different kind of enemy, and it is as tough a nut as he has had to try to crack. He has tried, though, uh, calling it the invisible enemy, calling it the hidden scourge, uh, and of course calling it the Chinese virus until all of a sudden one day he was not calling it the Chinese virus, but he has tried to create uh, similar dynamics to what he's done in the past. And one of those dynamics is the attention to staging. Cruz recounts how once Trump's longtime advisor, Roger Stone, told him, Trump always understood that how you look is ultimately more important than what you say. You see that in this story. Once remember talking to Chuck Todd from NBC, who said that after he interviewed Trump on the campaign trail in 2015 and 16, uh, he would ask to have the camera sort of flipped around so he could watch on the, on the small screen how he looked, but to watch on mute. That's how he wanted to sort of study the performance he had just given. And now figure that into the press briefings. In those evening briefings when families are perhaps 
eating dinner and uh, CNN is on and the sound is down, the image that comes across is Donald Trump, the president, in the center of that stage looking like he's on top of things and in charge, regardless of whether or not he actually is, regardless of the particulars of the response, regardless of the particulars of the uh, amount of medical equipment that is or is not getting to nurses and doctors all over the country, he looks like he's in charge. And I think that is something you're seeing in some of those approval bumps. And Trump's approval ratings are the highest they've been, at least since his first weeks in office. How does that bump compare to presidents in past crises? We'll have more on that right after this quick break on Inside Politics, the RNC in Charlotte. Hey, folks, today's podcast was made possible by listeners like you. Thank you to the listeners who submitted their questions on WFAE.org slash Inside Politics. And thank you to the listeners who made a contribution to WFAE to support breaking news and in-depth reporting. If you're enjoying today's episode and learning something new from Inside Politics, the RNC in Charlotte, make sure to give this podcast a rating and review in your favorite podcast app. And if you want to support the podcast even further, become a member of WFAE with a donation of any amount, $5, 10 $15, you name it. Just hit the donate button on WFAE.org slash Inside Politics. And thanks. We're going to go back in history and look at some past events and how the public rallied around the president. Here's David Hopkins, a Boston College professor who wrote the book Red Fighting Blue, How Geography and Electoral Rules Polarize American Politics. What we're seeing right now is a very familiar pattern, which is called the rally effect, short for rally around the flag. And what it is, is that when there's a time of national crisis, the approval ratings for the president rise. And we've seen this happen ever since we've had good survey data to measure it. And so um, it's not very surprising that Trump's numbers are, are up a bit because probably any president in this situation would be up a bit. So, Steve, where are Trump's approval ratings now? ABC News and The Washington Post found that 49 percent of registered voters approve of the president's performance compared with 47 percent who disapprove. That was for the period between March 22nd and March 25th. Another highly rated poll, the Monmouth University poll, shows that 46% of voters have either a favorable or very favorable impression of the president. Here's Patrick Murray, Monmouth's director. Going back to when he took office, that's the highest number that we've registered for him. So it's clear that there is some benefit, that people do want to be able to rally around the president. Uh, For example... He's never been in double digits among Democrats at all. Now his approval rating among Democrats is 11 percent. And yes, 46 percent is Trump's highest approval rating, but not by much. It's up just a couple of points from past months. And that's what Murray finds intriguing. We talk about his numbers moving in terms of two or three points as being extremely significant. And we would have never done that for another president. We would expect to see bigger shifts in these times of times. But because our partisan tribes here in America are so entrenched. We've never seen a lot of movement. And even when we get to a nationwide pandemic, which has basically shut down most of the country, we still don't see a lot of movement, which says a lot about you know, where we are as a public right now as much as anything else. And the uptick in approval ratings for the president has shown up in head-to-head matchups with Biden. 
And Murray doesn't know if that's because people are responding positively to the president or if it's because Biden has been invisible. I talked to a campaign staffer for one of Biden's former Democratic opponents, and that staffer is worried that the former vice president just isn't visible enough. Biden brushed off that concern during a Zoom press conference last week from what he called his recreation room. Are you concerned at all about getting your message across? Well, you know, I I, I was because, but I'm finding out that uh, what you've mastered along before me, that uh, the new technologies are quite effective. I noticed that, for example, I noticed that when I laid out my plan a couple days, three days ago or four days ago, that it didn't get covered on the national nets, but I found out 3.8 people, 3.8 million people watched it online. The new technologies led him to hold a telefundraiser where his visibility or lack of it came up. It was hosted by former chairman and CEO of the Coca-Cola company. Notable guests were former Georgia Senator Sam Nunn and Sally Yates, the former acting U.S. Attorney General. And according to a pool report from the event, the Biden campaign allows reporters to cover parts of his fundraisers. One donor said what she's concerned about is, quote, that we see Donald Trump every day with this crisis, giving his press report. And she said she'd just love to see Biden more. Like, quote, how do we get more of you and less of him on our airwaves? Here's Murray again. One of the things that we saw, if we go back in time, in 1988, that was one of the times that we saw uh, public opinion shift very radically was when Michael Dukakis had won the nomination, but then went off the campaign trail for the summer of 1988 and went from being a double-digit favorite to win that election to being behind because he wasn't campaigning and the the president, George H.W. Bush, was out there on the trail. That's right. Right after the DNC in July 1988, Dukakis had a 17-point lead over Bush, 55 to 38. But after the RNC in August in New Orleans, Bush was back on top. And then the infamous tank commercial came a month later as Bush began pulling away. That's one of the things I think that the Biden campaign might be worried about right now is the sense that they just don't have a platform in which they can just simply remind people that they are there. So that's why he's going to do interviews on places like The View, things that have a large audience just to try to remind people that he's still around. But Hopkins, the Boston College professor, said he thinks this campaign is different. It's certainly true that Biden is is not going to be the focus of attention for a while, but that isn't necessarily a very damaging thing for him. You know, it's really not an election that's going to turn on what people think about him so much as what they think about Trump. Okay, so the president's approval ratings are up. But as Murray mentioned earlier, when you look at history, the bump he's received is really pretty small. Let's go back in time and look at some other rally effects. Let's start in 1962. This is a CBS News special report. Do you, Ambassador Zorin, deny that the USSR has placed and is placing medium and intermediate range missiles and sites in Cuba. Yes or no? Despite that angry rhetoric at the United Nations, the world seems to have veered off, at least for the moment, the collision course toward global annihilation. President Kennedy's approval rating had been sliding through the summer and fall of that year. But after the Cuban Missile Crisis, which was in October, right before the midterms, more than 70% of the country approved of his performance. And 70% is really, really high when you consider where we've been for the past 12 years with both sides so politically entrenched. 
But, of course, there was no talk radio then, no MSNBC, no Fox News. Yes. Let's skip ahead 18 years. Day 142 of the Iran hostage crisis. And the Shah's arrival in Egypt complicates efforts to free the hostages. We'll talk about that tonight with the top Iranian diplomat in this country and with the wife of one of the hostages. That report was from March 1980. But going back to November 1979, when the embassy was stormed and the hostages were taken, President Carter's approval rating went from 32 percent in a Gallup poll to 61 percent. But the hostage crisis and the economy wiped out that rally effect. By the spring of 1980, Carter was back to between 30 and 40 percent. And then there was the first Gulf War. This is a CBS News special report. Showdown in the Gulf. Reporting from New York, Dan Rather. No decision that any president has to make is of greater consequence than the decision to go to war. President Bush has made it in regards to Iraq's invasion, occupation, and rape of Kuwait. President George Bush received a boost in August 1990 when Iraq invaded Kuwait, with his Gallup approval pushing past 70 percent. And then after Desert Storm in February, it briefly approached 90 percent. And the biggest rally effect ever came after 9-11. George W. Bush's approval rating at the end of September was 90 percent. For Gallup, that's the highest presidential approval rating ever. Now, let's wrap up with a topic we examined in Episode 5 of Inside Politics on how the State Board of Elections is preparing for November and a possible surge in people voting by mail. The executive director, Karen Brinson-Bell, had floated the idea of sending every registered voter a mail ballot, which would allow them to vote by mail, in addition to being able to vote in person on Election Day. We have more clarity on that now. Brinson-Bell made recommendations to the governor and the General Assembly about changes. She didn't propose sending everyone a mail ballot, but she is recommending making it easier for people to vote by mail. Right now, you need either a notary to sign your mail ballot or two witnesses. And to encourage social distancing, she wants to require only one witness or eliminate that requirement altogether. And there are other things like having prepaid postage to return mail ballot request forms and making it easier to request a ballot altogether. But I think the most interesting idea is to make Election Day, for 2020 at least, a state holiday. The reason is that she's worried about having enough volunteers to work precincts because most of those volunteers now were elderly and most in danger to COVID-19. So the idea is that November 3rd is a state holiday. Then there's a large pool of people who could volunteer to work at the polls, like teachers and state workers. And those changes need to be approved by the General Assembly, which looks like it will be a challenge. I talked with Senate Leader Phil Berger, the state's top Republican, and he was very cool to the idea. I understand that some uh, progressive, liberal, Democratic groups would like to roll that back and put us back in many respects to where we were, uh, I'm afraid that's where the elections director uh, would take us with her proposals. When he says where we were, he's talking about the 2018 9th Congressional District mail ballot scandal. Yes. Remember, both Democrats and Republicans voted for a tougher law on mail voting after that scandal. And Berger sees these changes as Democrats trying to undo that law. Because even though the 9th District scandal involved a Republican candidate, Democrats overall favor mail voting and bringing down what they see as barriers for people voting. Berger also didn't like the idea of a statewide holiday on Election Day. He said the state already has two weeks of early voting. 
And we'll stop on that note. Thanks, as always, to our political reporter, Steve Harrison. Happy to help, Lisa. For continued coverage of the coronavirus outbreak and its impact on Charlotte and national politics, go to WFAE.org. Subscribe to Inside Politics, the RNC in Charlotte, on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, and WFAE.org slash Inside Politics. If you like the episode, make sure to give it a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Please take care and stay safe. Until next time, I'm Lisa Worf. Catch you real soon on the Inside Politics podcast, the RNC in Charlotte.